0: Let's open our Bibles together before coming to the table of the Lord, turning to the book of Philippians, the second chapter, Philippians chapter 2. Although our focus is on verses 6 through 11, we will read beginning at verse 1 through verse 11. Now, before we take a moment to pray, let me say to the children as we move into this season of the year, that here we have the core of our faith, the core of the Christian faith, the incarnation of our Lord. And I say to the children every year, that word incarnation means enfleshment. If your mother prepares chili con carne, it is chili with meat, all right? So we are talking about God assuming human nature, becoming man, without ceasing to be God. That's what the word incarnation means. It's not a flower. I had some cultists come to my door a while back, and uh, I was talking about the incarnation, and then they said, well, we don't believe in reincarnation. I said, well, you need to understand. I said, nothing about reincarnation. This is... Standard Orthodox Christian language for God assuming human nature. The second person of the Trinity. So incarnation means God, the second person of the Trinity, assumed human flesh. Which is the greatest of miracles. Let's pray. Our Father, as we turn now to this text, we pray that all, but especially our children... Will be gripped by the reality of the incarnation of our Lord and will understand that apart from Him who became incarnate, we cannot be saved. Will you open our minds and hearts to understand these truths as well as we feeble minded, finite, and fallen creatures can? By the illumination of the inspired page through the work of the Holy Spirit, give to us an understanding to the saving of our souls. In these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Philippians chapter 2 beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God... so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we move toward Christmas, will you begin to try and think with me upon the infinite condescension of the Son of God in coming to this earth to be our Savior? I say, will you try... Because our best efforts are simply feeble. We try because all that we are capable of is is just a weak effort. Indeed, will it not take an eternity to even begin to understand what it means that God did this great thing for us in the person of Jesus Christ? But now as we come to Philippians 2 this morning, we have the greatest of Paul's summary of his doctrine of Christ. I suppose you might look at Colossians 1 and think that there is the greatest and perhaps a great argument can be made. But certainly this is the most comprehensive of the Apostle Paul's statements about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And surely, surely the teaching of Paul at this Christmas will bring us down. That's why he wrote this, by the way. He wrote this not simply to give instruction on the doctrine of Christ, but so that the doctrine of Christ would lead to humility on the part of the church members. And if there is anything that would be wonderful for us during this season of the year, it would be that we who believe in Jesus Christ, who are often arrogant in our marriages, arrogant in our homes, proud in our relationships would understand that this text, this great truth of Christmas is the great truth that really should humble me into the very dust so that I begin to think of others more highly than I do of myself. Don't you think that would be a great result of our spending time in this text this morning and of Christmas as a whole? Now maybe when I preach through Philippians we can take this in segments and work through it very slowly but I'm doing the grand sweep this morning And I'll look forward to that more detailed work on another time. But let's read verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus or was also in Christ Jesus is another possible translation of the text. You see what Christ did and then you apply it to your own life. We cannot do what He did. That is absolutely unique. Only the Son of God can become incarnate and go to a cross and die for our sins. But we can act out of recognition of what He did. Those of us who know Him and are saved by Him surely can have an humble heart because of His humiliation. So Paul wants us this morning to dwell upon the pre-incarnate Christ and what He did when He assumed human nature... And here we find the profound impetus to Christian living and humility. So will you look with me first of all at the pre-incarnate Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ. Christ who he has always been and who he was before he assumed flesh. The pre-incarnate Christ. We read in verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So before assuming human nature he already existed, the text tells us, in the form of God. In these verses again we have the most magnificent description of Christ in Holy Scripture. And it tells us that before assuming human nature our Savior always existed. He existed in the form of God and this word morphe, form, it really means the essential attributes of God. Just as the expression in verse 9, the word morphe is used again in verse 9, means the essential attributes of a servant. So here it means the essential attributes of God. So the essence of who God is. This is who Jesus is. Of course we know this from other scripture passages as well. Were we to read that great Christological passage in Colossians 1, we read in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Or had we time to examine the first three verses of the book of Hebrews, we would read in verse 3 of chapter 1 of Hebrews that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or had we time to examine John one one together, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God All of these passages and many others in the New Testament all affirm with the Apostle Paul here in Philippians 2 that Jesus is God. Now children, when I was a boy sitting under preaching and I heard my pastor say Jesus is God and in the incarnation it is God actually coming into this world. I said come on. I was the great skeptic when I was a boy sitting there in the congregation. Maybe the heart of God is shown in Christ. Maybe something of the spirit of the Lord is there with him. But surely, surely you don't mean to say that God actually came into this world. But yes, he meant it. I mean it because that is exactly what the Bible teaches. This one who came into this world to save us from our sins, who assumed human nature is God Himself, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. That's what the Bible teaches. So Paul is affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. In the creed, the Nicene Creed that we use this time of year, in that creed there is a ringing affirmation of the full deity of Jesus Christ, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all worlds were made. And that's why the text, notice again in verse 6, speaks of equality with God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, the Son who had all the divine attributes was equal in substance with the Father. He is of one substance with the Father. All the divine attributes belong to Him. And He had every right, think of it. He had every right to come to us and to say, you serve me but he came into this world and served us. And that is what makes the condescension so great, so infinitely great, so immeasurably wonderful. Martin Luther said, we preach always him, the true God and man. This may seem a limited and monotonous subject, likely to be soon exhausted, but we are never at an, we are never at an end of it. And that is true. We are never at an end of this great truth. Now will you pause and just think? Just set aside everything for a moment and just think. Often during this season, will you think? Will you ruminate upon this truth? God himself came into this world and he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I don't deserve that. I deserve, because of my sin, His infinite displeasure. But He came into this world to redeem us from our sins. Which leads us to the second thing we see in Philippians 2. We've seen the pre-incarnate Christ now, the incarnate Christ. Again, verse 6. He continued in nature God. Again, this is Christ. This is who He is. By nature He is God. And this does not and cannot change. He continued in nature God. That is to say, when He became incarnate, He did not cease to be who He had always been. He simply became who He had not been previously. He became our Redeemer, God in the flesh. And so we read in verse 7, if you will look there, "...but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant," being born in the likeness of men. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. The word here is doulos. It means slave. J.B. Lightfoot puts it this way, the master of all became the slave of all. Ellicott in his old commentary says, his godlike majesty and visible glory, Christ no longer wore." And that's the amazing thing about it all. Becoming in the likeness of men. That is accepting the conditions of humanity. The frailty of human flesh. To hunger, to thirst, to tire. To know the emotions without sin but the emotions of a true human being. This is what Christ did for us. Now think of how startling this was. In the first century A.D. to the Jew who heard this. God... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one, and you're telling me it's this Jehovah who came into this world? Yes, says Paul, that's what I'm preaching to you, and apart from him you cannot be saved. It must have been a thrilling thing to understand that Jehovah himself came into this world and assumed human nature in order to save us from our sins. Should it be less thrilling for us? You know, I think the temptation is to say, well, it's Christmas again. We're going to hear about the incarnation of our Lord and forget the wonder of it all. But if I have any goal at each Christmas season, it is to help us, by the grace of God, once again to enter into what it really means that Jehovah came into this world incarnate in fleshment. It should thrill our hearts. And especially as we understand that the child of Christmas is the pre-incarnate Son of God. The child of Christmas is the incarnate God. But the child of Christmas also is the one who went to a cross. And so the third thing we see in the text is the crucified Christ. The utmost humiliation is found in verse 8 when we are told he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Note that this humiliation is voluntary. Yes, the father sent him, but the son willingly came. And his obedience was all the way, his obedience was all the way down, 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 infinitely down, all the way down to death as our substitute on a cross. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obedient to come to that hour appointed by the Father to bear the sin of the world on the cross. Obedient to death and all that death meant. That is to say, bearing on that cross the hell that we deserved, on the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. You will be separated from God. And that's the greatest mystery of all, that this incarnate Christ can come into this world and on the cross cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me and be separated from his Father in some strange, mysterious way in the bearing of our sins and The wrath of God upon himself. The death of a cross. The incarnate baby, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world, grew up and went to a cross and entered into the hell of utter humiliation. So that Paul can say in Galatians 3: Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And he went to a cross which was a symbol of horror and degradation in the Roman world, which should, said Cicero, be far from the bodies and from the imaginations of citizens of Rome. Citizens were not crucified in the Roman world. And he went to a cross. And how astonishing then that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But may it not be a stumbling block to you or folly to you. Oh, not to us. Do we not glory in the cross? Is not the cross our only boast? And so what do we learn here? The baby in Bethlehem, God the Son, the eternal Son of the Father, who assumed human nature and obeyed the law that we broke, was born to die. To go to the cross and pay the penalty of our sin. And no wonder Simeon said that a sword would pierce Mary's heart because of his utter, complete, immeasurable humiliation and infinite, infinite condescension. So this Christ of Christmas, pre-incarnate Christ, the incarnate Christ, the Christ who went to a cross But he didn't stay there. He was placed in a tomb. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended on high and he is now the fourth thing we see in the text, the exalted Christ. Let's read again verses 9 through 11. Therefore, on the basis of his obedience, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, the exalted Christ. Jesus said in Luke 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted and that's the pattern of the life of our Savior and it is also to varying degrees the pattern of the lives of his people in union with him so as a result of his suffering he now is given the name that is above every name what name is that well the apostle paul here is referencing the passage that pastor macdonald read to us earlier in the service from isaiah 45 in which we are told that it is at the name of yahweh of jehovah that every knee will bow the apostle paul is saying that's who this is He is the the, the Jehovah, the one spoken of by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 45. Every knee before Jehovah will bow. The God-man Jesus Christ, now risen and exalted, will be recognized to be who he is, the true and the living God. And every knee shall bow in the name of Jesus. I've always appreciated that statement of Charles Lamb. In which Charles Lamb said, If Shakespeare appeared before all the literati, they would all rise, but if Jesus came, they would all kneel. Well, he will come, and when he does, there will be a universal bowing in his presence. It's the expression of his exalted deity, the God man now exalted, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There is a purpose in this world, people of God. We do not live in a chance universe. That's something that comes through clearly in the Bible and clearly through the Christmas narrative. There is a purpose in this world. It is God's purpose, and it is driving everything to that day when there will be bent knees and confessing tongues. So I want to ask you the question... Some of you who are here that are outside of Christ, that have never trusted in Christ, you do not know Christ. Do you understand the day is coming where God's people but also the entire universe will bow before this one who came into the world and went to a cross and is exalted? That He's coming again and every knee will bow before Him. Do you today confess Jesus Christ as Lord and your Lord? And if you do not, why not? Let me say that there are some who are not bowing who are here because you just don't want to be rid of your sin. You know that if you bow before Him in your heart, that you're saying, Lord, rule over me. You want your sin more than you want Christ. You don't bow because you love your sin and do not love Jesus. And that says something about your heart. You need a new heart. You need the Son of God who came into this world. You need to trust Him and bow, bow now, for the day is coming in which every knee will bow. Now let me draw some threads together and make a variety of applications to the people of God here this morning. Before coming to the table, let me drive home some thoughts. First of all, let's just think about who He is You who don't know Christ, you really need to think about who Jesus is. Get into the Gospels. Read them for yourself. Understand who Jesus is. James Stewart, Scottish theologian, I have my differences with him, but he made a great statement. He said, let me read it to you. Speaking of Jesus and the Gospels, He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. Yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners Yet no one spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions. Yet for sheer stark realism, he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last himself he did not save. There is nothing in history, there is nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confronts us in the Gospels the mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality and that's what you need to come to grips with that the mystery of Jesus as found in holy scripture is the mystery of divine personality he's the Lord, he claims your life, every bit of it that's who he is but let's always remember what he did How God must hate sin to send his own son into the world who willingly came and bore the wrath of God that I deserve to bear for eternity. How awful sin must be that God's own son would become flesh in order to pay the penalty of our sins. That's what he did. But also here, for every believer in Jesus, let me remind you, there's a call to humility. The Son of God, according to this text, humbled himself, infinitely condescended. Can we believers live as if those truths were not revealed? The more of Christ we come to know, the more of Christ's mind we will exemplify If we have the mind of Christ, we will have a lowly mind and will help each other's faith. So let me be plain. Plain to myself and plain to you. If we know the Lord, we cannot hear these things and not be changed. If we know Christ, we cannot hear these things and not be changed. If you can hear them and it not matter, then you don't know Christ. It's like talking to a blind man about colors... A blind man might have an idea of color, but he's never seen color. The one who has come to know Christ through the effectual call of the Spirit now sees color. And when he hears God's word, he recognizes his sin. He believes, he repents, he changes, he grows, he matures. And he walks out after the sermon and he says, you know, I'm going to be different because of it. I've not been humble in the way that I've treated my wife, but I'm going to grow And change. I'm going to repent and believe. You know, I've not been humble in the way I'm treating my parents, but I am going to grow and ask the Lord to help me so that what Christ did will inform how I live, and His salvation in my heart changes the way in which I relate. You know, I haven't been very humble at work in the way in which I treat my employees or my employer. I've been arrogant toward him. But I'm going to leave now and change because Jesus did this for me. Then I'm going to do this for this man that I might even find hard to work with or for. Do you see what he's saying here? That's the point of this great Christological doctrine. That's his application. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So those who exalt themselves need to humble themselves, because the day will come in which you are humbled. When I taught systematic theology at Westminster Seminary, I had a student in my Christology class, and I had gone through Philippians 2 on two separate occasions in the course for different reasons in great detail. We opened our Greek texts, We worked through it. It was a wonderful thing. Later, at the end of this course, this student came to me, and he said, I want you to know Going through Philippians 2 and seeing what Jesus did for me has changed my marriage. That young man wanted to be a pastor, far as I know he is. And hopefully he's living humbly before God and before his wife and family. That's the point here. Let it change your life. But now this idea of the humble will be exalted, that's another application I want to bring. And this is extremely important. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who are proud and arrogant will be humbled. It may be in this life. It surely will be in the life to come if they are not humbled before Christ before. There's real unity between Christ and his people. Nero exalted himself and beheaded the apostle Paul. T.R. Glover said the day would come when men would call their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. In a far, far greater way, the son humbled himself but is now exalted. And when he comes again, he will not come as the son humiliated, but as the son exalted. Those who now treat him lightly and treat God's people with contempt will do so no longer. And so I plead with you, humble yourself now and come to Christ by faith that you may be exalted in due time and join with God's people who in that awesome day will praise him who makes all things new. There will come, and this is extremely important, for our persecuted brethren in the world, for members of this congregation who are being treated unjustly, it is extremely important that you understand that the scriptures teach that there will come a complete turning of the tables. 2 Timothy 2 11 through 12. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And now there's your encouragement, Christian that Christ was hissed and mocked and crucified, but he rose from the dead. His Father has crowned him as mediator, and it was not man that exalted Christ, but God the Father who exalted him. My friend, Mr. Spurgeon, put it this way, not in person, you understand. Each of the thorns of Christ becomes a brilliant in his diadem of glory. The nails are forged into his scepter, and his wounds do clothe him with purple of empire, The treading of the winepress hath stained his garments, but not with stains of scorn and dishonor. The stains are embroideries upon his royal robes forever. The treading of that winepress hath made his garments purple with the empire of a world, and he is the master of a universe forever. O Christian, sit down and consider that thy maker did not mount from earth's mountains into heaven, but from her valleys." It was not from heights of bliss on earth that he strode to bliss eternal, but from depths of woe he mounted up to glory. Oh, what a stride was that when at one mighty step from the grave to the throne of the highest, the man Christ, the God, did gloriously ascend. And he adds this, if Christ was exalted through his degradation, so Shalt thou be? If Christ was exalted through his utter and complete humility and degradation, and you also are being treated unjustly in this fallen world, if Christ was exalted out of the valley of humiliation, so will you, because you are in union with Christ. That's the teaching of Holy Scripture. Yes, we will triumph. We must triumph. None can stop our triumph because Jesus has triumphed. Jesus ascended. Jesus is enthroned. And Jesus is making all his enemies the footstool of his feet. All, all will bow. And so we often sing, the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns that mighty victor's brow. Or we sing, no more the bloody crown, the cross and nails no more. For hell itself shakes at his frown and all the heavens adore. Not one knee, not one, will remain unbent. Amen and amen.